Our reading today is taken from the Song of Songs, uh, beginning in chapter 2 and then moving on to a section from chapter 8. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away, for now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Chapter 8. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. Back in 1996, just as Liz and I were leaving, living in Sheffield where we'd been studying and then living uh, to move to Bristol for me to start as a student at Bristol Baptist College. The Sheffield rock group Baby Bird released uh, an album called Ugly Beautiful, which gave them their biggest hit, the brilliantly commercial song You're Gorgeous. Some of you will know that and will now be humming it. But that album also had another track, which got less commercial attention, but is rather more interesting, I think, at least to us this morning, as we come to the final week in our short summer series on the wisdom tradition from the Hebrew Bible. The song is called, Jesus is My Girlfriend. And whilst the song isn't all that special, at least in my view, the title of the song, Jesus is My Girlfriend, gave me something of a revelation, which is that many of the songs that we were singing to Jesus in church could just as easily be romantic or even sexualized songs sung to a beloved partner with just a minor tweak of the lyrics. Are we really? just singing to Jesus as we might to our girlfriend or boyfriend. Well, the first thing I think we need to note is that there is nothing inherently new in utilising intense relational imagery to describe a person's spiritual experience of Jesus. Just recently, I was listening to a podcast from The Rest is History with uh, the uh, renowned historian Tom Holland. And it was telling the story of the 14th century mystic Catherine of Siena and her mystical marriage to Jesus, in which she gave herself in marriage to Jesus in a vision with I kid you not, his circumcised foreskin functioning as her wedding band. But St. Catherine is just one example of a whole tradition of female mystical eroticism in which monastic women described their ecstatic devotion to Christ in decidedly erotic terms. From the 13th century nun Agnes Blanbeckin to the 16th century Saint Teresa of Avila, to the 17th century Catholic nun Bernadetta Carlini, 
these traditions bear witness to a reaction against a male-dominated church hierarchy and to women who refused to be entirely subjugated, either spiritually or sexually. They also create a precedent for using erotic language in the context of one's relationship with Jesus, something which, of course, we find in the Bible itself, in those passages which speak of the church as the bride of Christ, Gospel of John, chapter 3, Ephesians, chapter 5, Revelation, chapter 21. So, come with me to 1850, just a couple of years after the founding of Bloomsbury Baptist Chapel. And that early congregation would surely have sung one of the latest hit hymns of the era, because yes, can you believe it, organ hymns were, once had their own kind of hit parade. Published in 1850, I'm thinking of the hymn that we still sometimes sing, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear. And in its original published version, it contained the following verse. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest and king, my lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. So there we have one of our better-known Victorian hymns speaking of Jesus as husband. Or what of Charles Wesley's famous hymn, To Mystical Union with Christ? Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me, freely let me take of thee, spring thou up within my heart, rise to all eternity. Now, I'm not trying to spoil anyone's favourite hymn here, although there is a little bit of a once you've seen it, you can't unsee it going on. But I am trying to create the historical context that lies behind more recent explorations of intimate worship. Now, I'm not going to score easy points this morning by trashing some of our more modern songs that are popular in church life. Oh, I hear some of you say. But if you are familiar with the contemporary worship scene, you'll recognise the trend for songs where a simple substitution of either Jesus or God with the name of your beloved turns them from worship song to sexualized ballad in an instant. All of which brings me to the most sexualized book of the Bible, the Song of Songs. It sits there in the Hebrew Bible as part of the wisdom tradition that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And I'm grateful to Judith for reading the sections chosen for us by the lectionary this morning, and I'm sure uh, she was grateful that the narrative lectionary spared us all the delights of hearing read aloud in church some of the more purple passages from these lesser-turned pages of our scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But seriously, if you haven't read the Song of Songs recently, do go home and read it all the way through. It is quite eye-opening. And just as an aside, do you know how difficult it was to choose the hymns for this morning's service? With my double entendre radar set to high, 
Song after song ruled itself out for us to sing today. And in the end, I settled on songs that spoke of God's love for us rather than the other way around. But anyway, moving us on. If you were with me when I introduced this series a few weeks ago, you may remember that I sounded a note of warning about the tendency to allegorise wisdom literature. This is where people take a text and make it into an allegory for something. So, for example, it could be an allegory of Christ and the Church, or of the Virgin Mary, or some aspect of Christian discipleship. And this allegorical way of reading scripture has dominated much of Christian history until comparatively recent times. The danger with such allegorization is that it strips the text from its original context and plunders it for minor details that can be related to the object of the allegory. So, uh, when we come to the Song of Songs, our allegorization alert needs to be set nearly as high as my double entendre radar was when choosing the songs for today. And this is because the history of interpretation of the song is one of allegorization par excellence. There is a Jewish tradition of reading the love between the two lovers as an allegory of God's love for Israel. And among Christians, the book has often been interpreted as describing the love of Christ for his church. And these allegorical readings conveniently allow interpreters to avoid having to grapple too hard with some of the steamier moments in the text by placing all the emphasis in interpretation into the realm of God's love for us rather than the love between two human beings. But is the book really in any way about God's love for humans, or indeed about human love for God? There is certainly evidence to suggest not. After all, did you know the Song of Songs is one of only two books in the Bible that don't ever actually mention God? Does anybody know what the other one is? Esther, absolutely right. In fact, the scholarly consensus about the Song of Songs is that it originates as a collection of love poems celebrating the joy and goodness of human love. In other words, it's great literature, but not necessarily great theology. But, given that this text is in our scriptures and that there is a tradition going back millennia of reading it in both Jewish and Christian worship, can we really write off God's presence within this text altogether? Does God have nothing to say to human love of the physical kind? Well, uh, paying my dues in what I'm going to say next, I want to note that I'm particularly indebted to two female biblical scholars. Firstly, Professor Catherine Schifferdecker, and secondly, Professor Rabbi Wendy Zierler. Here we find ourselves torn between two interpretations. The traditional interpretation, which is that this is an allegory of the love between God and Israel, or between Christ and the church. Set against that, the dominant scholarly interpretation of modern times is that in this book, it's really nothing more than ancient erotic love poetry. And I want to know, can it be both? 
Perhaps it is both a celebration of the love between two people for one another, a love strong as death, as chapter 8, verse 6 put it, a love that is reflected in the renewed life of the earth itself, as we find in chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Perhaps it is this love strong as death, this love that reflects and is celebrated in creation between two people. But perhaps at the same time, the song is also a celebration of the love between God and God's people. A love that is, of course, itself stronger than death, sealed within the Christian tradition by the resurrection. Phillips Tribble and Ellen Davis have both noted that the song is a reversal of the curses of Eden. So the relationship between the loving couple in the Song of Songs uh, is restored. And in place of Eve's punishment in Genesis 3.16, where she is told, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, Instead of that, the woman in the Song of Songs declares, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. You can see the curse of Eden that comes into the relationship between the couple in Eden is reversed in the song. In fact, the woman's voice is the dominant voice in the song. She is in a full, robust and mutual relationship with her beloved and she speaks her love clearly and loudly. But also, in the song, the rupture between humanity and the earth is restored because in the garden of the song, the, the, the love between the couple takes place in a garden, we are told specifically that there are no thorns and thistles which again is a reversal of what happens to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, where the earth is overwhelmed by thorns and thistles. And so here, the love between the couple is celebrated by the earth itself, rejoicing with the lovers and setting aside, being freed from all that would kind of corrupt it. And so I do think the text here begins to function theologically. Even as it speaks of the love between the lovers, so it also points beyond them to God's greater love for humans and for creation, inviting the possibility that God's love fully encompasses human desire. I remember as a teenager being told by my youth leader, uh, at church that I mustn't do anything with my girlfriend that I'd be embarrassed about if Jesus came back whilst we were doing it. Well, apart from the terrible eschatology inherent in this advice, it also creates a guilt around sex and a shame around sexuality, which the Song of Songs, I think, very helpfully deconstructs. What if there is no need to feel guilt about our existence as human beings? What if sex and sexuality are not just evidence of the fall written in human relationships and human personhood, but are instead gifts of God given for pleasure and human flourishing? 
Rabbi Zierler says, I'm just going to quote from her for a moment. She says, I look at our world, which is filled with explicit sexual imagery on every billboard or every street corner, on every TV channel and every radio station, and I am sick at heart for a reading of the world which can elevate my sexuality above base, prosaic level to which it has fallen in daily discourse. She continues, This is not to say that the love poetry in Song of Songs is casual and base, or that one should not at least appreciate the plain meaning of these love lyrics. But what I mean is that I'm also moved by the dogged interpretive effort in the Jewish religious literature to draw theological meaning from human bodily experience and thereby to sanctify the material world. Friends, there is much wisdom here in what she says. A text doesn't have to mention God to speak of God. Maybe God is joyfully, creatively, playfully in all things including our oh-so-human joy in one another. But I wonder if there is yet more wisdom we can glean from the poetry of the Song of Songs. In the ancient Hebrew world, God was almost always presented as a male, a divine patriarch, a kingly monarch, the supremely righteous figure of a man. And the corresponding aspect of this kingly, righteous, male God, was that sins were almost always presented as deriving from feminine weakness. It was almost as if, in the ancient world, you might say that behind every strong man was a weak woman trying to bring him down. Just look at the story of Adam and Eve for an example of this. Whose scuppers Adam? Eve does. And then we get into the allegorization readings. If God is the bridegroom and Israel is his bride, then it is the male God who is faithful to Israel and the female Israel who is unfaithful and faithless. Similarly, within the Christian tradition, if Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ, then it is the male Christ who is the sinless perfect one and the female church who is faithless and unfaithful and in constant need of forgiveness. This is how a culture of female inferiority got engraved into the both Jewish and Christian laws and societies, as biology itself became marshalled to the patriarchal systems of female oppression. And this is the context in which the mystical holy women of the Middle Ages, who I was speaking of earlier, subverted the systems that sought to control every aspect of their being with their ecstatic visions providing a new way of reclaiming suppressed and oppressed femininity and sexuality. And so we come to the empowered woman of the Song of Songs. My former biblical studies tutor Cheryl Exum once commented that the female eroticism in the song is never successfully controlled by the men in the text 
not by the angry watchman, nor by her would-be protective brothers. And if we can escape from the allegorical bind of patriarchy, this is a text which conveys female agency, in which a woman speaks, controls her own life and her own body. This is a text in which a woman is unashamed of who she is, as she is declared and seen to be not guilty. And it is this declaration of innocence, the innocence of the Garden of Eden before the fall. This is a profoundly theological utterance, because it is the word of liberation spoken ultimately and most fully at the cross of Christ. As in the crucifixion itself, the world is declared not guilty. As Stuart Townend and Keith Getty put it in their wonderful hymn, In Christ Alone, which we're going to be singing shortly, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The theology of the Song of Songs is not found in its allegories of God for, or Christ and the people of God, but simply in its innocence, in its declaration of love as good, in its delight in what it means to be fully human. This is the good news of Christ, because it is the good news of God. And it is good news for us, whoever we are and however we love. Because, as the first letter of John puts it, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Amen. Now, we have a time for a panel to briefly respond. So, Liz and Philip, I believe you're joining me up here to reflect on what Simon said in the way that we started doing when we couldn't all be present in a building to talk after the service. I hope there will be some further discussions after that. Liz, I'll pass to you to think for a while. Well, I have to admit, I did say to Simon, I'm sure you need a panel discussion when I heard what the subject was. Just a moment, was. I don't think that mic's on. It is? Okay. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't hearing it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, how do you do a panel discussion on Song of Songs? <laughs> um, I think, uh, as many of you know, and I've said before when I've been doing um, some of this, um, my background, uh, this whole subject is very um, emotive and very important. Um, having grown up in a brethren church where um, from a very young age I learned that women wear head coverings, that women can't speak and that women can't be leaders, um, I also very much learned that um, certain things about sexuality and what it means to be a woman and what guilt means. So that was that was kind of drummed into me from a very young age. Um, and I think I very definitely experienced the um, allegorizing of Song of Songs. You know, I remember that quite distinctly. Um, and I think 
But although there was some good in that, and it kind of, you know, it, it, it was wonderful. I always thought it was wonderful that, that Song of Songs was in the Bible anyway. That, to me, was a bit confusing. Um, I think that as I got older, I realized that certainly my church did me a bit of a disservice. And I think um, that churches often, you know, even, even well-meaning ones, can do a real disservice in, in the way that they talk about sexuality, in the way they talk about gender. Um, and I think that that can be very damaging and it can be something that lives with people, you know, for the, the whole of their lives. So I, I guess my question here is sort of, um, for us today, how do we uh, revert that Garden of Eden thing? You know, it's a great, you know, a great thing to hear. This is being a, a reversal of the Garden of Eden. But how do we really do that? You know, and, and obviously, I think we try and do that as a church. You know, we say that we are inclusive and we are affirming. Um, but sometimes I wonder if we really think what that means, you know, what, what affirming really means in this context, actually. And I think it's for, for all gender, not just um, for women. But I think specifically for women to hear that there is good news here and that there doesn't need to be guilt. Um, and that, you know, God isn't necessarily male and that I'm not necessarily less than, than, than man. So I think, yeah, my, my big question from this is how, how to reclaim it, how to continue to reclaim it, how to continue as a church to undo the damage that is done, let's face it, to people throughout the generations and even today in the views of sexuality. How, how can we have this as being a, you know, a delighting what it means to be truly human. Thank you, Liz. Philip, I'll let you bring your thoughts before <coughs> Only a few very, very brief ones. Yes, I too was daunted when I realised that um, I was going to be talking about racy Hebrew love poetry. So the first thing I did was to look at, make a quick reference in a dictionary, and it actually said a proper reading of this uh, of these texts, of these chapters, takes five hours and 55 minutes. So I thought, right, <laughs> I'm going to have to look at a few other areas because I didn't have that much time since um, knowing this on Friday morning. The second thing I did was to revise a few things about Solomon. And um, the dictionary said Solomon was blessed with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Breathtaking, isn't it? Desperately alarming. And <clears throat> the second, um, it went on to say in the next sentence, he, was a, he possessed a wise and discerning mind. <laughs> well, <laughs> one wonders how much time he would have for that sort of thing. But anyway, uh, moving away from this, I thought, well, where are we in all this? And just in, in an absolute nutshell, uh, one or two things, two things I want to say. This is the first, really. Um, the three kings of Israel, Saul was the first, David followed him, and then, his son, uh, and then Solomon. Um, Saul, endless disobedience to God. And it's very interesting to read the sort of battle uh, that was going on between the two in, in many ways. David, a murderer and adulterer. Um, his son Absalom uh, um, uh, killed his brother. 
And let's just say this is a good job there are two sides of the coin because David was a devoted and talented player of the harp, author of some of our most inspirational psalms. But they really are, some of these and others, characters mentioned, very unappealing characters indeed. And I think for me one of the most interesting things is that God returns to them reuses and reforms them. And I think that is something that is terribly encouraging from reading often very grim chapters, these of the Old Testament. The second thing um, is I wonder, we've talked about mysticism and these women with these strange sort of religious fetishes. Um, they've nearly all become saints. Um, they were all illiterate it would seem but possessed some sort of emotional intelligence and it was certainly this emotional intelligence that governed their, their lives and the a question is in the Protestant tradition do we appreciate mysticism much in any form we're trying to make worship broader wider incorporate all sorts of other things and <clears throat> there are things like the Iona community um, I was in Wales a couple of weeks ago in Pembrokeshire where there's a great interest in the St. David's region of providing walks in paths of the saints. And these are very popular and they now include Ireland as well. Um, and I wonder, we've got Taze, we've had Baptist retreats, I don't know if they still exist. But there are all sorts of manifestations in worship, euphoria, tongues, second blessing, Toronto blessing, restorationism going back to the early church, great waves of revival. And right through, and <clears throat> um, I was talking this through with a neighbor yesterday who said, oh, well, you ought to mention probably Mother Teresa, and I hadn't thought of that. Um, but she's an interesting person. Um, I, Cliff Richard, I remember years ago, saying that Mother Teresa was the most Christ-centered person he had ever met in his life. Um, yet, um, the contrary is also very, very strong too. And I noticed that some feminist writers like Germaine Greer called her a religious imperialist, fanatic and fundamentalist. I really wonder, you know, where we, how we balance these totally contradictory strands. I don't know. But, um, and of course the Welsh Revival, and the hymn we started with this morning, again coincidence, was one of the great hymns um, of, of the Welsh Revival. But I do love the last two lines, which I think encapsulate very briefly um, the whole gospel, I, I think it's perfect when we were looking, talking about peace and talking about justice. And we've got them both here. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Uh, I can see a lot in my experience of growing up in various churches of Liz's uh, experience, but also looking back in history with the, fem the, the with female characters you mentioned, where there is that um, strong history of preaching chastity before marriage, of preaching control, uh, <coughs> celibacy, 
also very conscious that I've got a role at the moment as deacon that Simon's asked me to do of going through and doing an audit against a set of standards called, uh, from a group called the Single Friendly Church. And they are very clear that that solitariness isn't necessarily a choice. It can be from the breakup of a marriage or the death of a partner. And we still need to respect the individuals who find themselves in those situations or who simply never found love. And we've got to celebrate that as well as the gift of love when seen and expressed, however that may be. Um, just a, a few words, Simon. Thank you um, so much um, for very unhelpfully, very helpfully, <laughs> sorry, um, unwrapping, you know, the, the, those things that have always been very tricky for us, depending which background we've come from. And I think um, what I really have always been interested in, what it is to be a human being, um, wherever that is, and in whatever state that is. Uh, and I'm, I'm really pleased that, you know, in terms of traditions, we're, we're disco rediscovering the positive side of being a human being, um, which, you know, I think that has been lost. And I th if you look in, uh, I think in other traditions, um, perhaps other than the Protestant world, um, we find, say, through the mystics, who I love, um, and women mystics, particularly June of Norwich, this rediscovery of God's love for the world. So what I've been, um, in my preparation for our prayers this morning, um, I've been, um, I take some prayers from um, the Church of England Care for Creation, which is a great resource. Um, and um, one of those areas I think that for me, uh, we we've often forget is, and you touched on it, in a sense is that you know, everything about us as human beings is blessed by God. You know, the shame that we often feel is um, a negative thing that we take it on board from St. Augustine and all the other things, all the things that society puts on us. But actually to be human, to live where we are in a, in a great city like this, is a really great thing. Um, so the first, the first prayer um, is an urban benedicte, written in the tradition of... Um, perhaps the medieval, um, where people like St. Francis are calling upon creation to bless God. Urban Benedicte. Oh, let our city bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. Oh, let our city bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. Oh, bricks and mortar, bless God. Oh, concrete and glass, Bless God. O oh, underground pipes and wires, bless God. O oh, tarmac and paving stones, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O oh, dandelions and daisies, bless God. O oh, cherry trees and geraniums, bless God. O oh, pigeons and seagulls, bless God. O oh, cats and dogs, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O oh, homes and gardens, bless God. O oh, shops and offices, bless God. O hospitals and police stations, bless God. O factories and depots, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O bikes and buses, bless God. O cars and vans, bless God.
O lorries and trams, bless God. O shopping trolleys and pushchairs, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O work of our hands, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O work of our minds, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O families and loners, bless God. O O babies to oldies, bless God. O street cleaners and traffic wardens, bless God. O property developers and planners, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. O Daniel, Aisha and Harriet, bless God. O Uncle Kawan and all, bless God. To you be glory and praise forever. May you be blessed, O God, in your city. To you be glory and praise forever. May you be blessed, O God, in your city. To you be glory and praise forever. And that was by Olive Powell. So let us pray now. God has entrusted us the stewardship of creation, the pursuit of truth and justice, the task of building communities of reconciliation and worth. Often we fail. We have a moment of silence for reflection. A poem of lament. It's 3.23 in the morning and I'm awake because my great-great-grandchildren won't let me sleep. My great-great-grandchildren ask me in dreams, what did you do while the planet was plundered? What did you do when the earth was unraveling? Surely you did something when the seasons started failing. As the mammals, reptiles, birds were all dying, did you fill the streets with protest when democracy was stolen? What did you do once you knew? That's a poem by Drew Dillinger. Now we have a time for confession. And um, you can join me in um, the response to these lines. Uh, Forgive us, O God. For our unwillingness to feel the suffering of others, and our readiness to live comfortably with injustice. Forgive us, O God. For our self-righteousness that denies guilt, and our self-interest that strangles compassion. Forgive us, our God. For our abuse of this planet, and our exploitation of its resources. Forgive us, O God. For our failings in community, and our reticence to become involved, forgive us, O God. For the times we were too eager to be better than others, when we were too rushed to care, when we were too tired to bother, when we were too preoccupied to listen, when we were too quick to act out of motives other than love, forgive us, O God. May God forgive us, Christ renew us, and the Spirit enable us to grow in love. Amen. Gracious God, your amazing love extends through time and space to all parts of your creation, which you created and called good. Your covenant with the human family is remembered in every rainbow in the sky, symbolizing your promise of love and blessing to every creature and to all successive generations. 
In Jesus, you invite us to enter into a new covenant in communion with all who seek to be faithful to you and to do justice. As people of faith, we are called into covenant. Your covenant of faithfulness and love extends to the whole creation. Today we pray for the healing of our planet, that present and future generations may enjoy the fruits of creation and continue to glorify and praise you. That's a prayer by Carlos J. Correa Bernie. Jesus Christ, in changing weather, vanishing species and impoverished neighbours, the heavens and earth bear witness against us. As you lit an Easter fire and cooked breakfast, fashioning God's kingdom from the stuff of this earth, so when we cook and light and warm our homes, make us people of your resurrection, choosing life through simplicity, ingenuity and obedience. Amen. A blessing. Deep peace of the running wave to you. Deep peace of the flowing air to you. Deep peace of the quiet earth to you. Deep peace of the shining stars to you. Deep peace of the gentle night to you. Moon and stars pour their healing light on you. Deep peace of Christ, of Christ the light of the world to you. Deep peace of Christ to you. May God, who established the dance of creation, who transforms chaos to order, lead us and empower us to transform our lives, the witness of the church and the governments of nations, so that all may preserve and reflect the glory of God revealed in creation. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, be among you and and remain with you always. Amen. And so, let's bless one another with the words of the grace. May the grace of God, Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Go out into the world and share Christ's love. Amen.